Hey everybody, it is episode 43 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris joining you from Rogue in Austin with Steve. Hey Steve. Hello podcast world. We also have a special guest, Karen, joining us who is going to be helping us talk about women and running and pregnancy, a topic that we've had questions about and then we wanted to make sure we covered in depth with Karen, who's our expert on the show today. We'll get a little bit more into her credentials in a second. As we always do, we want to start with a few current events. We've got a few topics to cover as we intro. And the first is we want to give a big shout out to the U.S. Men's Mountain Running Championship team who won the race in British Columbia, Canada this past weekend. The Basically, the NACAC Mountain Running Championships were competed in, in British Columbia. David Fuentes, who's a local Austin elite runner was there on that championship team and the American men took hold the took home the gold and the American women brought home the silver in that event which is a really really big deal David was also on the men's team that won last year competing in Bulgaria so we want to give a shout out to David congrats to him on being a part of that team I also wanted to talk a little bit, Steve, about mountain running in general. I think it's, you know, it's different from trail running. These short kind of mountain running championships are a little bit different. It's like running, it's like cross country on steroids in a lot of ways. Although this year's course was a little bit more paved from what I understand and on crushed limestone paths. So it was a little bit less crazy in terms of technical trail. But it's like, it's like running fast cross country style, but in the mountains, it's like a whole sport unto, unto itself. So tell our listeners a little bit more about it because I don't think there's a lot of knowledge about this aspect of the running world. Yeah, it's a really unusual thing. It's pretty. It's really pretty cool, too. Um, if you had to ever get a chance to see it, it's pretty epic to watch these runners sprint off a starting line and basically go straight uphill. And that's what the, it is usually. It's a sometime, usually a loop course that requires them to go pretty much straight uphill for about usually a mile, a mile and a half, then it usually winds around a little bit, but then has to come down basically the same thing, and they kind of do loops of it. Every every course is a little bit different. They all have a little bit of a different vibe, but it's short distance, so as a, you know, a lot of people think about trail, they think ultra. They think longer distances like half marathon, marathon, 50K, 50 mile, 100 mile. These races are usually like 15K or... Yeah, this one was 10.5K. Yeah, so 10K, 15K, different distances, usually looping, but exceedingly steep uphills and very, very sharp downhills, nearly impossible to get a rhythm. And uh, they're just really, really... It's kind of a specialized event. Um, Not that necessarily specialists are the best at... not Not necessarily that a generalist couldn't be good at it. Joe Gray, I think, is probably one of the best mountain runners. He... He's really good on cross-country courses. He's pretty darn good in ultras. He's a really good marathoner, and he happens to be among the best in the world, if not the best in the world at the mountain running. So it it doesn't just have to have specialists, but many of those folks are specialists, um, and it's just a really unique and interesting thing to watch and thing to participate in. Yeah, so something to look out for for those that might be in the masochist types among the listeners who want to check out these crazy, short, intense mountain races. But congrats to David and the U.S. team for bringing home the gold and, of course, for the women, uh, the silver. 
The other thing we've got to talk about to intro, we got an announcement this week from Boston about the buffers, quote unquote buffer, for those who were able to get into the race underneath their qualifying standard. It was the the biggest kind of gap yet to the standard for people to have to run under the standard in order to get into the race. You had to run under three minutes and 23 seconds or faster than your Boston standard in order to actually make it in to the race this year. To give, to give people some context, they were they were able to let in, I think, just over 23,000 runners by qualifying standards. There's going to be about 30,000 in the total race if you include the charity runners. But they received, from what I understand, just over 29,000 qualified applicants but had to squeeze that into the 23,000 limit that they were la- allowing for qualified athletes. And so as a result, those that were only those that were 323 or faster than their standard got in. So you have a whole bunch of people more than ever, perhaps. And the standard is definitely more difficult than ever to get in to do that race, even if you're a qualifier. So I know we've talked about this before, Steve, and, and you've, I think, even keyed up for our listeners without really going there at times some of your thoughts on the matter <laughs> so i want to take it to you and then karen i want to bring you into this discussion as well what are your thoughts on the 323 standard and the fact that there are athletes who qualify for boston who don't actually get to run the race um i guess i'm going to kind of warm up into this thing because my first my first thought as most of our listeners know it's a complete and utter bullshit but let me warm up a little bit um I have no problem with Boston doing, they can do whatever they want to. They're the most respected and the most desired race to get into. They are the, they have a tough job to do in the sense that they've got incredible logistical difficulties, especially post 2013. They've got all kinds of um, challenges in terms of this new running resurgence of folks getting back into the sport and excited by the sport. They've got more people than ever trying to get quali- trying to get qualified for Boston and run Boston. So I understand that they have to set a system up. My problem, and that people, that they have to set a system up, and no matter what, somebody's going to be disappointed at the end of the day. But this is my point. Let an athlete be disappointed when they finish their race. Don't make an athlete be disappointed some six to nine months after they finish the race, telling them post that long after the race whether they will or won't be accepted. I think nearly every athlete would prefer a five-minute faster time um, than to be in a scenario where they don't know. They have to wait to get an email on a, on a Wednesday afternoon or Wednesday morning many months after they've raced to determine whether they actually met their goal. And I just don't think we have nearly anything else. If it's if it's a pure lottery, make it a pure lottery. If it's a if it's a something where you, somebody earns the right to get into the race, then make sure that they know that they earned the right to get into the race. I think they should set a Boston qualifying time. Now the argument will be, and I know this from personal experience, uh, the argument will be that if you move it five minutes faster, then within a year to two years, everybody's going to start running that much faster. Okay, that's fine. So. I, and I know that that will happen, too, because, you know, when I coached collegiately, one year they decided to change the college qualifying standard to a time that only five or ten women had achieved the year before. The next year when they set that time, which was nearly 20 seconds faster for a 5K, which is a huge amount, like 
25 people ran that time. So it's amazing how the human spirit and the human species just, just steps up to the next level. So I know that that could be an argument, but it doesn't change the fact that those athletes on that day, they have to wait so long before they're disappointed. I think it's absolute bullshit that that's the case. I also have a really big issue with the charity runners. In my opinion, this is an event that should not have charity runners in it at all. It should be a completely earned race. If it was an earned race, then you wouldn't have any problem filling that that fifth, that 30,000 entry fee, entry field with all people who all qualified for it for the standard that you set. And I, I Boston will say, well, we make money off of those people. We'll stop making money off of them and start giving the money, start, start putting more investment into those athletes that are actually earning the right. You're the one event that actually does this. It's the Olympics for the common man. Stay that way. Stay true to what the race is all about. And then... You know, you you don't have so many people's hearts broken. Maybe Boston doesn't care. I don't know. Seems like they don't care. But I just think it's an, a, a bad move all the way around for them. And I think that they could figure out a way. Another option is for the charity runners is instead of taking on 5,000 or 7,000 charity runners, take on 3,500 and double the cost to them. If you double the cost to them, you, now you open up three or 4,000 more entry options for the people who actually earned the right to go there instead of paid for themselves to go there, and you still meet your budget in the way that you need to meet your budget. Let's steal from the charity and not steal from the athletes that do the race. Okay, I'm stu- uh, soapbox off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I've got some thoughts, but Karen wanted to get your thoughts. As someone who's run Boston, how do you feel about people qualifying but not being able to actually do the race? Well, it completely and totally sucks. <laughs> um, you know, I ran Boston for four straight years between 99 and 02, and um, I was much younger then, I was much faster then, and I lived in Boston then. And uh, all of those things made it really quite easy for me to qualify. And so now looking at that here, you know, 15 years later and knowing that I would be somebody who could squeak a qualifying time. But God, it would suck to do all of that work and all of that training and get my qualifying time and not be able to run. And to what Steve was saying about the charity runners, I get, as a former Bostonian, the importance of supporting the local charities through the marathon, but I think his suggestion about double the qualifications for them for how much they have to raise, cut the number of charity slots in half, you've met your goals, you've opened up more opportunities for qualified runners to participate. It's tough. I I have feelings on both sides of this argument. The one thing I do appreciate about the current process is the fact that it does guarantee that everybody's fighting for every second (laughs) when they're trying to qualify. So to me, it's interesting that now that they've now that we've seen this kind of true standard, if you want to call it the true standard times drop upon which you can actually get in, people are responding to that. I think previous to this the buffer you needed to get in was two minutes, 30 seconds, or at least that was the biggest it had been a couple of years ago. And so we have another minute faster and, and it's because people are now targeting, well, if I'm going to do this, I got to run five minutes faster or four minutes faster. And so they're targeting faster times. And as a result, it's kind of raising everybody's game. And you know that anybody who gets in had, had to fight for every second because knowing that every second mattered, I, I once had an athlete who got in by, three seconds you know underneath the the buffer and 
you know, he was happy that he gave every second, you know, gave it, gave it for every second in that race. I also had a runner who qualified in May who was two minutes, 40 seconds underneath the standard. And we thought that should be good enough because last year I think it was just over two minutes was the buffer needed. And he just found out that he missed it, you know. So I agree with you, Steve, that that's really tough to not know and then to find out that at this point. And there is no good consolation prize either. That's the thing that sucks. It's like you qualified, but that's it. Because the experience, the true reward for the ex- for for qualifying for Boston is Boston. It's not anything else. There's no second prize. There's no. And I might be wrong about this, so correct me. I'm sure the public will correct me if I'm wrong. Chris, you might correct me immediately, but I don't. I think those people, everybody has to enter the race, and they don't get their money back. So they get their money back. Okay, that's yeah. that. That so would be really their problematic. Their card isn't charged until they're officially in. So yeah. But but I guess my main issue and my main point about all this is is moving targets suck, and I think that when you set moving target when you put a moving target out there for people, um, it it makes it just exceedingly difficult to be prepared. I get the fact that you know every second counts, but how do you say that when now how can you make that argument to your athletes, Chris? Now that it's a minute and twenty second minute and. 20 seconds faster than it was last year that's not just chase every second that's literally a different race plan perhaps maybe that's changes the way you would have written that schedule out for that gentleman that you had that made the time right right. you probably would have maybe done more of an even split plan than a negative split plan there's a variety of different things you might have done differently which then means that that target not only is moving from an objective but you're also giving them a different race plan to associate with that and it just to me it just complicates the scenarios to so to such an extent that this is already that there there's easy answers and easy fixes to this if they want to continue to create um, and keep the race as the greatest foot race. Again, uh, my point is it still is the greatest foot race because it takes you, it's so hard to get qualified. But I just think that there's more reasonable ways to do it, in my opinion. Now, the other thing I'll remind people, and I made this commentary in, in some of our Boston episodes, is that this race didn't introduce qualifying standards until the 80s. So it used to be the people's race and that's the way a lot of bostonians still view it it's that it's it it was never a race for the faster runner and in fact there was a lot of controversy when they added standards because they didn't want to lose that element of this being the people's race so while some people may say well the charity runners didn't earn their spot i think bostonians or people familiar with the history of the race might say well that's sort of keeping us connected to the history of this race as the people's race they also, I believe, the number is t- raised $25 million for charities. So there's an, you know, a decent chunk of change going to good causes for those seven or 6,000 or so charity runners. So it's a tough question. I think, too, Chris, that one of the arguments that I know that many of my friends in Boston made and are still making regarding the charity slots is that this is their hometown race. They don't there's not like another Boston Marathon in October that they could train for. And so for many people, especially in Boston, in a place where there's such incredible civic pride, they want to participate in their hometown race. And I totally get that angle as well. Yeah, I I think I would lean towards the solution more of change the standards, make the standards faster, 
but within some range where you know like you know let's just say they made them all five minutes faster now that this has happened and next year you're gonna have maybe you end up with some overage still but then you flex the charity spots within kind of a smaller range so that you can get everybody who qualified in and then the standards just adjust from year to year depending on demand I guess I would I would lean towards a solution more like that where just drop drop this at this point drop the standard by five minutes you might as well right I mean when I first qualified for Boston I qualified in February at Austin and registered and then raced two months later I mean it used to be that way where if you qualified you were in no matter what there was never really a question even if you qualified later so it is a new world, but, you know, I would rather see them just make the standards harder, personally. I mean, there's, there is one argument that folks I hear all the time as a, as a coach um, that some people may put out there. I know that men frequently get really grumpy about the fact that they think that the standard for men is a harder standard comparatively than it is for women, which opens up a whole can of worms. Um, but I, I think that this I think that the standards that they've set are I wouldn't favor changing that ratio at this current time. I don't think that if they did make a change to go five minutes faster, they should stay consistent with that. And if they wanted to look at whether or not what's apples to apples in terms of a male's time and a female's time, they could. But I think because it is definitely a more difficult comparatively apples to apples for men to get qualified than women. But we we should i had a few people who over the last 24 hours who mentioned something like that to me sure. about their frustration well, that they thought that they were held to a different standard and my statement was that doesn't change that hasn't changed for years like that has not changed at all right. so that shouldn't be it doesn't change your shot your standard your what you're going for that's been the same for 20 for for 12 months as you prepared for this race but i but i do know that there are people who have that argument i don't agree with them i think that while I do think they're not exactly right, I do think we need to have as many as as consistent a participantship as we possibly can. And BAA has a lot of reasons for why they do right. they have that sket that set up the way that they have it set it up. But I don't think that that should be part of the argument we're making right now. And I only say that just because I had some people mention it to me over yeah, the last no, I 24 agree. hours. I think leave that, those ratios to me aren't an issue. The issue I might have if you were to nitpick the standards is the age ranges, you know. I don't think you need to start rating the standards until 40 or 45 versus now they go up at 30 or after 35. I mean, I, I mean, my standard at this point as a 38 year old is 310 when it used to be 305. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I think that should stay 305 until I'm 45. I agree with you. You know, I agree and, with you. And you could make that argument on both sides potentially, but I wouldn't mess the, with the men's and women's ratios. I agree with that. So there you go. There will be much debate. But I will say this for those that might be listening who didn't get in but did qualify. You should at least take pride in the fact that you are a Boston qualifier and you should be proud of that. And then keep working. <laughs> Listen to some podcasts and then keep working because you'll get there. One of my athletes who's a little older, he's a. Uh he was on the cusp looking at waiting to see we were pretty sure he got in based on the ratios from before um and he didn't get in and his first statement was i'm getting old and brittle i need to retire i need to retire and i'm like give it a week or two and i guarantee you're going to come back and we're going to shoot for five minutes faster and then we'll be it'll be a, it'll be a moot point and I, I've, I've just now decided in my opinion boston qualifying standards for all my athletes are five minutes faster yeah. Yeah. than their exactly. goal time so it's 
for everybody. When they tell me it's two minutes or whatever, I'm going to say, shut up and make it five minutes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So just raise your bar and go get it. Okay. So with that, let's jump into our topic. As we mentioned, and as we've already heard from, we've got Karen Roof. Did I say that right? You did. Here. She is, she has three kids. So she's been experienced in this whole pregnancy thing, has run in a marathon in a time of I think a smoke and fast 344, eight months postpartum at one time has served as a perinatal fitness specialist for the last 10 years or so. So you're an expert, both having been through this, but also having coached other people through this in talking about pregnancy and running. And obviously there's pre, you know, prenatal stuff that you got to think about in terms of how you run during the pregnancy. Then you've got some maybe delivery related decisions to think about. And then recovery postpartum how do you get back that running shape back after you've had your baby so we're going to go through all of that today Uh, but before we get there Karen I want to give you a chance to maybe give a little bit more introduction to yourself and some of your credentials in this area thanks for having me guys I am uh, so excited to be here because I'm really a lifelong runner I ran my first 5k in April of 1980 um, and really haven't stopped running since and I um, you know have gone through phases like most runners do of times when I'm super competitive and times when I'm just running because I love it and it was really when I became pregnant with my first child um, 15 years ago that uh, as a nerd at heart I started really dialing into the the research and the science of pregnancy and exercise and running and finding that there just really wasn't that much out there and um, that made me super frustrated. Um, I like to know what I'm getting into. I like to know how I'm going to work. I like to make a plan. I like to execute the plan. <laughs> you know, I'm sure. She sounds like a rogue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so I did that through, through my first pregnancy. And um, all, all through this time, I was living in London at the time. And so, um, you know, 15 years ago in London, I was the real freak show out there running while pregnant. Um, this was just taboo. didn't happen. It was yeah, taboo, Absolutely right? taboo. Absolutely taboo. And uh, then when I got that big, giant, royal blue baby jogger shipped over <laughs> from the United States <laughs> and I pushed that around through Kensington Gardens, I mean, <laughs> we stood out. Um, but, you know, running was always so much a part of my identity that not running wasn't an option for me. <laughs> and um, so I just really tried to figure out how to do it safely, how to do it where I felt good in my own body where I was doing things that um, weren't taking anything away from my son and uh, just really trying to, to keep at it. And um, then, you know, my friends would be asking me, oh, well, now I'm pregnant. What do I do? And, you know, I'm pregnant and I don't really feel good running. So what else do you think I could do? And then, you know, fast forward sort of five years beyond that. And they're like, dude, do you realize that you're like coaching people how to do this all the time? <laughs> and, you know, I come out of an academic background. I was a college professor in my first career. Um, and... I sort of went, yeah, you're right. And hey, you know, I'm kind of a do what you love person. And so you know, I got a personal training certification and a perinatal fitness specialist certification. And that was 10 years ago. And I'm still working with women and trying to help them feel good in their bodies because when you feel good, you feel good. And whether that's running, um, I don't actually do a lot of running coaching myself. I save that for my own really stress relieving kind <laughs> of place. But I do a lot of work with perinatal women, prenatal and postnatal, trying to help them be in their best body so that whether it's running or cycling or swimming or just keeping up with their kids at the playground, they feel physically capable of taking on whatever comes at them. 
So before we dive too far into kind of specific questions, one thing I've observed as a dad of three kids and having watched my wife go through this and run through her pregnancies and having coached athletes in my groups that have gotten pregnant and kind of worked with them through that, the thing I've learned is that this is a very personal experience that everybody has a different experience. And so we're going to talk about some general tips today, but everybody kind of has to listen to their own body and respond based on how they're reacting in the moment. So talk a little bit about what you see there in terms of each female's unique experience when it comes to this whole process. Yeah, everybody is different every day. But then when you throw in the hormonal cocktail of pregnancy, (laughs) you know, you really have a wide range of experiences for women. And there are some women who are just so sick or so low energy or just so not in the mental space where they're wanting to keep up with their running that, you know, they have to develop a little bit of self-compassion about that, um, which is really, really hard for runners sometimes to let go of their standards for themselves. Uh, Maybe you know people like that. Um, (laughs) Just a few. But just a few, (laughs) right? And then the other sort of complication is that, you know, so you've you've had a baby and you were able to run through your whole pregnancy and your body bounced back pretty quickly and you were back on the road and you were feeling great. And then, you know, a couple years later, whatever, you and your partner decide to have another baby and you get pregnant again. And the experience is totally different. And again, allowing yourself to have this space and the recognition that just because like we were able to go down, you know, path number one the first time, that may not be available to you the second time. And to really pay attention on a day to day basis, as well as sort of observing what the trends are throughout your pregnancy, to listen to your own body, to listen to your own, you know, self chatter about, you know, I don't think I should be doing this anymore, you know figure out where is that coming from and if there's a, a real reason to actually pay attention to that voice that it's probably telling you something. Yeah, that might be okay to choose a different path. So Absolutely. let's start from the beginning. So when it comes to choosing or having a conversation with your OB-GYN about this new new thing that just, you know, conception that happened, um, how do you start? And as a part of that, I'd also like you to kind of talk about some of the myths out there. And I know and, and maybe it's less in the modern world versus 15 years ago in London. But, but you know, there are s- probably some still myths that it could be bad for you to, to run during pregnancy. So start there with kind of choosing a provider, having that initial conversation. And what are the general rules you would tell people about being able to run through pregnancy? I think choosing a care provider who supports you in your decisions, regardless of what they are around pregnancy, is absolutely critical. But... You know, I've heard from some of my clients and some of my friends who say, well, I don't really want to tell my doctor about that I'm a runner because I'm afraid that they're going to tell me that I can't run. And, you know, you just have to sort of say, you know, that's not a great idea. You know, your care provider needs to be a person on your team. They need to know what you're doing. They that will allow them to look out for potential red flags, for potential issues that may come up, or if you have um, some sort of um, diagnostic that's a little bit out of range, maybe there's a reason for that, and maybe that reason is you're running. Um, you know, for example, I know a lot of runners have really low resting heart rates, um, really low, low blood pressure, and when you're pregnant and your blood pressure is, uh, or your blood volume is doubling, then having really low blood pressure can actually be seen as a negative within the medical context. And so having your care provider understand that 
this is what's going on that you're you are coming in in a physical body that's different than what their normal statistics sheet are made from and so they need to be aware of that from the very beginning and like I said at the beginning just being open with them and being able to be open with them and having a good conversation about it is going to make your whole experience that much better. It's going to give you the confidence to listen to your own internal voice as well. And so I really always encourage women to go find an OB-GYN, go find a midwife, go find whoever it is who's going to support you and listen to you and allow you to make informed decisions about your body. So we have an ob OP in our <laughs> groups who, I mean, his message generally, at least as I've heard it, is you, know, you a healthy mom is a healthy baby. So he is very encouraging of women who want to, if they're if they've run or if they've run before, if they have a history, to keep doing it through pregnancy, yeah. or if they've done X Y Z, whatever X form of exercise before, to keep doing it through pregnancy. Obviously, listening to their body and kind of feeling it out, and if there's something that doesn't feel right, then consulting him about it to talk about, you know, whether or not adjustments should be made. Is that the general message? You know, is keep Absolutely. doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing it through the lens of turn up that internal voice that's talking to you so that, you know, as runners, we tend to like to push through things. Um, but, you know, pay attention to it with a, a little bit um, more clarity. And, you know, don't go try something brand new that you've never done before. Um, you know, this isn't a time to, you know, try to hammer down a new 5K PR. Um, but there's no reason, you know, pregnancy is a health condition. It's not a medical condition. And so if we can recognize that from the outset, that this is about being healthy and staying healthy. Yeah, absolutely. All the science and all the data shows, I mean, without question, that women who are active during pregnancy have healthier babies. And it's not just an immediate measure of the baby's health, but that sets them up for better long-term health as well. One question I have is, um, you said initially, we talked about it being an individual scenario in every situation. Um, but is there a sort of a time frame at which you think of as maybe there's a, there's a time when a, when a woman who's pregnant should maybe refrain from not necessarily just running, but have a point like first trimester, second trimester, third trimester. Are there sort of rules of thumb about wh how much running, how little running, or is it just literally an individual situation all the way through? It's literally an individual situation all the way through. I mean, m my first child, for example, I ran two miles on my due date. It was crazy freak heat wave in London, 95 degrees outside, but I felt like running. So I went running and it felt good. By the time I got to my third kid, it was like 26 weeks. I was getting shin splints. I felt like a duck with a broken leg trying to run. <laughs> and that was my indication that it was time. It was time to be done and figure out some other way to stay active for the rest of that pregnancy. I think that's such great advice. I, you know, Chris and I have a, a, an athlete who I've been coaching since she was a freshman in college. So I started coaching her her freshman year. And her experience between her first and second child, they were so, so different. And her, her, she's not um, the most flexible person for when it comes to adjustment. She likes to keep her plan and likes right. to stay on plan. That's why we run. But it was amazing to watch her struggle through that and coach her through both mm -hmm. of those pregnancies and see how she had to adjust and how amazing her, how she walked away from both of them um, with such an appreciation 
such a positive appreciation of her own body in a way that I don't think that she'd had before. Uh, she was in touch. She actually now as an athlete, she listens to her body better than she's ever listened to her body before. Um, her life has gotten really challenging with two kids and a husband who's exceedingly who's 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 busy all the time. But she is. Um, it, it's it's she's an easier athlete to coach now that she's been through that process. Yeah, and I think for some of us, we need that sort of beaten over the head kind of experience to realize that like oh my god like we we aren't immortal like we we aren't infallible like there can be something that can can make us pay attention and stop short of what our original goals are and that you know what that's okay that's okay okay. yeah i remember she also was surprisingly flexible because i think during the second one she was swimming more right because that was feeling better to her Mm -hmm. than running because she had some of that background but kind of incorporated more swimming in the second and I've had, you know, we've had, we have an athlete that, you know, we did a workout this morning with, with Kristen. She ran three marathons while pregnant. Three marathons in and one pregnancy. In yeah. one pregnancy. <laughs> and then I've had women that I've coached that have decided, you know, after a couple months to, to, that it just wasn't feeling right. So they, you know, stopped or dialed back or started doing other things or focused on walking. And so going back to that point of it's a very personal journey and you just have to be flexible throughout it's really critical right and i appreciate your perspective as coaches of allowing women to make those decisions for themselves and supporting them through those decisions and knowing that there will be a time when they come back and that that's okay it, it might have taken me to 47 years <laughs> to figure that <laughs> Steve out but is still learning <laughs> no, i'm still learning well i did learn very early on as people have heard me say this i think it was like 25 i said oh, women rule the world and they make and they make all the basic decisions and we should just see to that but as a coach it was very difficult for me to do that right. so it, it was uh going through this process with those athletes and having you know, the doctor that we have that's in our system. She, I was always able, with the pr- athlete's permission, right. to be share basic information, not not major information. We were we were able to also keep an eye on on our athletes in that scenario to to be able to be give feedback where feedback was necessary and positive and and or it's, that whole HIPAA thing is very complicated and difficult. Oh, it but it's always along the lines of this person's emotional health is what, what I was always in and mm-hmm. um, the, the athlete was not always in it. The, the 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 pregnant woman wasn't always in a position to know exactly where that was at that point. But I had been able to see through so many ebbs right. and flows that it was it was really positive. So um, my experience of having pregnant athletes has always been really really positive um, because. It's made me grow as a coach. It's made me grow as, um, you know, understanding that uh, not with a when you have another b- when you have a baby on board, you you're always way more conscious of listening to what your athlete is saying because there's two people that in that scenario, not one. Um, but maybe we should always be thinking that way as coaches. <laughs> well, and it's funny too how often we're the first people to know besides their husband. Oh yes, <laughs> oh yes. But it's so true. You know, but the things, some of the things, and I'd like to get your comments on this Karen when when I find that out I and a lot of times the athletes I've coached have wanted to continue training in some way not necessarily with a specific goal but with some guidance from me on what they should be running each day and so forth and usually the conversations I'm having are one that we should probably dial back the intensity a little bit so you know definitely not you know like push the edge like we might normally if we're really going for specific goals so dial back the intensity a little bit and usually I'll also dial back the long run distance a little bit for, you know, I've got a, a runner who's training for New York right now who will be, I think, about four months pregnant on race day. And she's planning to do the race, assuming everything feels good. And so far it has. 
but we've basically been working through like four weeks at a time schedules. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I'm going to write you a plan and we're going we're gonna to get to this point and then we're going to check in and then we're going to do another one based on how you feel. So we've kind of been taking it four weeks at a time. So far that's gone well. But what do you advise, Karen, from your experience, both individually going through it and then also as somebody who advises on this, in terms of how training could be adjusted if someone wants to keep running? Well, I love that your athlete has a four-week plan. That's awesome. I usually say that everything in pregnancy is a game day decision (laughs) um, because you just never know how you're going to feel on any given day, even with best of intentions. Um, So, yeah, I think, you know, have the plan, work the plan as best as you can, and allow yourself the flexibility to adjust as needed. So you have your plan. Maybe you wake up one day and you're just super low energy, you know, there are very real physiological reasons for why you're super low energy one day in pregnancy and then fine again the next day. And, you know, have room within the plan to make adjustments so that you can best support yourself. I think, though, too, that in running, a lot of times what happens is that we we want to keep running. We want to do this because it's still feeling good. We want to keep going until we get that point where it's not feeling good. But being aware from the outset that, it's not just about the, um, the the running in the legs and the hips and even the, the core muscles that's being affected in the running, but you know what's happening more internally as your baby grows, as your body changes, and to be mindful that you may start feeling weirdness in places that you haven't felt weirdness before, whether that's round ligament pain coming through the low abdomen and into the groin, which um, a lot of time... Uh, in runners, they'll say like, oh, you know, it's my hip flexor or my psoas is, is kind of funky. But no, that's just your uterus growing. Mm-hmm. And that round ligament that's trying to hold it up is now really stretched and strained. And um, being aware of that and being aware of your pelvic floor integrity and all of those kinds of things so that you can adjust as necessary. So let's talk about some of the other maybe flags, red flags that might say, hey, take a day off or take a couple of days off or kind of hang up the shoes for a little while before you jump back in. What are some of those other things you should be paying ten- attention to during the process to know whether or not, okay, it's time to take this day off and, and then wait for another day where I might feel better? Well, you know, super duper red flag, you know, do not pass go, do not collect $200. <laughs> Call your care provider immediately as if you ever have bleeding. Um, you know, I hope that goes without saying, but sometimes we tend to ignore the obvious. Um, another one would be if you have any type of dizziness, particularly dizziness upon standing, um, that just could be something as simple as a blood sugar issue, or it could be a sign of something larger going on. Um, and then another one that's really specifically running related, which tends to happen a little bit later in pregnancy, is that as the levels of relaxin, the hormone that your body starts secreting in later pregnancy, which is what allows you to have um, more joint laxity, you know, ideally that's what's going to allow your pelvis to open and let that baby come out. Um, being aware of if you start to feel a little bit like loose, and it may just be like loose in the ankles or loose in the wrists, but that's something that you want to pay attention to as a potential red flag because the last thing you want would be to be out running and you fall while you're running. And so that start of the relaxant secretion can start to cause um, just a little bit more instability um, in your joints due to the extra flexibility. So I have a question about 
maybe what athletes we just finished an entire episode on supplemental training um sort of weight training but also body weight stuff and um even drills and things like that what what suggestions would you make for a woman who who is pregnant as they're going and wanting to continue to maybe as in chris's case the fem- the the woman who wants to run a race in four weeks um, or anybody in this entire nine-month process, is there anything specifically you would suggest to them from a from a weight room or a strength training perspective or supplemental training that they should think of on top of just the general doing of it? Anything specific for them that might be different or unusual? Well, general rule of thumb would be after, you know, into the second trimester, really general gauge around 15, 16 weeks. That's when you want to stop doing any type of supine exercise. So lying on your back, um, you know, the, the concern there is that the weight of the baby in the growing uterus is going to compress that uh, vena cava in the back of the body and disrupt blood flow. Um, so that's something that you're going to want to adjust the type of core work that you're doing. Um, you know, so crunches not not good in pregnancy for a lot of reasons um but there are other types of core work that can be done standing so maybe adjusting to that the other thing would be paying attention to uh if you like like hit training high intensity interval mm-hmm. training to be aware that you're going to need to adjust what that high interval looks like um because while it's perfectly fine for you to get your heart rate over 140, that's one of those myths, Chris, that you were alluding to earlier that, you know, is still floating around out there that pregnant women shouldn't get their heart rate over 140, um, <laughs> which is not true. Um, but, you know, keeping a sustained elevated heart rate, you know, in the top of your, your, your target zone um, is something that can lead to the dizziness that's going to be more like an oxygen depletion kind of dizziness which would be one of those red flags like we were just talking Mm -hmm. about so looking at those kinds of things when you're doing some supplemental kind of training let's talk about gravity so as you gain weight you might one think about how you might support that growing bump on your on your belly and then you know as you alluded to with the joints kind of changing and stability maybe being affected how do you make sure you keep solid form and you don't fall (laughs) or have something like that happen while running? Well, the first thing you can do, which is in within many people's control, is to pay attention to what surfaces you're running on. So this is not the time to, you know, go develop your trail running career. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is really a time, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to put you on the treadmill either because that's a way to, to kill it <laughs> real quick right there. Um, but, you know, be aware of your surroundings. Uh, understand the things that used to not trip you up may now trip you up. Number one, you might not be able to see them. There be- does become a point in pregnancy where you <laughs> can't see your feet. Um, and, and just really tuning into your own body awareness. And it's a very surreal experience for women, particularly for women who haven't carried extra weight before in their lives, to suddenly be physically larger than what you're used to being where you know it's like a cat or something who's trying to fit through this small hole and they're sure they can do it because they've (laughs) been able to do something like this before and then suddenly (laughs) it doesn't work and that's kind of what it's like in, in pregnancy as you get bigger but specifically related to the changing center of gravity in running would be to really just pay attention to your form and to your posture to attempt as much as possible to keep the torso up and out of the pelvis to keep the spine tall 
um, that does two things. One is it allows you your, your pelvis to sit in the most natural position possible to make your running more efficient, but it's also going to keep you from hunching forward where your lungs are already getting compressed it's already getting harder to breathe by just the clear lack of space that they have they're getting shoved out of the way um so by allowing yourself to keep a chest open tall kind of posture is going to allow you to stay on your feet better what do we do about the baby bump do you need to support it? Do you need to wear something there to make it better? or You know, this is another one of those crazy things that when I think <laughs> back like 15 years ago, like we didn't even think about that. Like you just, I mean, and I'm a small person. Like, you know, I'm five foot three and like 120 pounds and I gained like more than 50 pounds with my kid, you know, so never even thought about it. But now there's all these kinds of fancy like belly bands and straps, <laughs> and, you know, uh, support mechanisms that, that you can wear. And of course the uh, offerings in women's fitness wear now compared to what they were, you know, even five years ago, there's just so many more options. So again, it's very personal. Um, some people really like having something snug up underneath the bump that makes them feel more secure and other people got it's just another layer you're gonna sweat through and feel gross and so mm -hmm. it doesn't work for them so we talked offline a little bit about your experience running and how running for you is um, now much more uh, an individual pursuit and one where uh, one where you it's your it's your it's your personal time talk a little bit about for those folks, those women who, as they go through pregnancy, might have to stop running, um, number one, how do they, what's the suggestions you have for them to deal with the fact that they'll be off their meds, right? Because yeah. running is a med. Absolutely. Um, and then also um, how, they might, uh, how they might find an alternative to that that makes them still feel like they're in the game and maybe even, you know, losing fitness is a real thing that's going to happen no matter what, and there's a bit of grin and bear it, suck it up, buttercup, it just is what it is. Yeah. But there's also probably a few things that they can do along the line to at least make themselves feel like they're in the position where they're still on top of what their bodies are doing. And and so give us a little bit of it. Some of that's probably personal, and f but also what you've seen in your clients as well. I think, you know, for most runners, for me to suggest that you start walking would be like telling you to like, just <laughs> take your left leg off. It'll be fine. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of not worth going there. Um, with the great exception, you know, we're lucky here in Austin, we've got a lot of fabulous hills and walking on hills while pregnant is like harder than running on flat ground. <laughs> so, you know, don't immediately ignore that as an opportunity. Um, but you guys already talked about like this athlete that you have who's gotten back into the water and, you know, that would be my number one go-to would be to put people into the water. Um, first of all, you're getting full body exercise, um, which, you know, you can get all kinds of, of stuck in different postures because the thing with pregnancy is you don't sleep very well mm. because like there's this whole alien life force thing going on and it makes <laughs> you uncomfortable and I slept on my stomach my whole life and now I can't. And, um, so being in the water, uh, allows you a level of just body freedom that you don't have on land and gravity while you're pregnant. And um, the hydrostatic pressure of the water also just feels really, really good against the extra weight and the weird form factor of your body while pregnant. Um, you know, if you're really missing the running of it, um, 
it is possible to hook two aqua jogging belts together to get them around <laughs> you while pregnant. I do know that from personal experience, <laughs> but nice. the uh, the uh, cheaper, a little more MacGyver kind of version is just to go to the dollar store and buy yourself some noodles. <laughs> put the noodles under your arms. It yeah. won't allow you to, to pump your arms like you would while you're running, but you, you can still get the running in the water. Um, and, you know, particularly for women who are pregnant in the summer, in a place like Austin, getting yourself in the water is just going to keep your core body temperature down and still allow you to maintain your fitness at a level where you don't feel like, yeah, you've just been sidelined. You're on the bench for, you know, a year. Is there anything with running while pregnant in the heat that people should be thinking about? I mean, just hydrate until your eyeballs are sweating. <laughs> I mean... That's really the most I important thing because it is the, the raising of the internal, the core body temperature is a concern while pregnant um, because, you know, where, where we cool off faster externally through sweating, um, the baby doesn't have that opportunity. And so that's something that, you know, staying well hydrated, having, you know, put a cooler in your car, put some towels in there with some ice cubes, get them on your neck so that you're able to cool down your core body temperature. Um, also, you know, go, go into intervals of running and walking so that you can give yourself a little bit of recovery if you're still interested in maintaining, you know, longer workouts. Okay. Let's shift gears, talk about delivery and some things that may happen or decisions that may need to be made there that might affect your running later. I know these days it seems like deliveries are often planned. <laughs> I was asked, I had this debate the other day with people. It's like, I wonder how many people actually have their baby full term now versus 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago when there were fewer options perhaps in terms of how to get that baby out. But some people have that decision of, do I have a C-section? Do I go for a vaginal delivery? How does that decision affect your running down the road? Well, a C-section, because they become so common, we tend to forget that this is major abdominal surgery. They are cutting through your rectus abdominis. They're cutting through your transverse abdominis. They are cutting through all of those muscles that both, you know, help you move in everyday life, that generate power for your running, muscles that protect your inner organs, all of those kinds of things. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm scared of needles. So the, the idea of having an elective C-section is kind of freaky to me anyway, because I don't want to go there. Hmm. Um, but I think really respecting it for what it is, which is major abdominal surgery. Um, you know, we need to do a better job of this as a society and taking care of our moms who do have C-sections, whether they're planned or not planned, recognizing what they've been through um, and supporting them appropriately. But if you're so eager to get back to your running that you're not allowing your body the opportunity to heal, you're not going to get back to where you want to be in the time you want to get there. Um, vaginal delivery, um, you know, I, I'm going to be totally, perfectly honest. I did it all wrong, um, you know, in terms of what I would actually recommend to people. Uh, you know, after my first kid, I went running two weeks later and sort of never turned back. Um, my second kid, I went running two weeks later and never looked back. I will say, though, I have a caveat in, in excusing my bad behavior because most women, <laughs> most women should really wait until their six-week check um, with um, their 
OB-GYN to ensure that everything is healed properly. Um, my, my All of my kids were born um, under the care of midwives, and so the postnatal mother care of um, midwifery is far superior to what you get in the traditional medical model. Mm. Um, so I did actually have clearance from my care providers to start back running then. But, you know, there are still things that you can do before you get to that six-week check. And I think that there's also a lot of confusion around, like, well, what happens at the six-week check? Like, like it's, it's not like I was not okay one day, and then I'm, like, <laughs> suddenly okay the next day because it's six weeks. But, you know, ideally your care provider should be doing an internal examination and making sure that all of your organs are in the right place. Easy mm-hmm. as that. <laughs> so you also might encounter stitching during the probably most often, most commonly, stitching post-delivery to make sure everything's kind of back in order because things tend to rip when those babies are coming out, as I learned the hard way. Um, From personal experience? You only well, observed uh, well the hard way. Okay, <laughs> sure, sure. I observed, <laughs> I observed the hard way. <laughs> fair fair point. Sorry points. about my, that. My wife gets all the credit. By the way, watching delivery... Our first, and again, don't listen to everybody's horror stories. For those that are going through this themselves, don't listen to everybody's horror stories because your experience will be your own and it'll be different. But Amy went through a 40-hour <laughs> labor and delivery process for our first. 40 hours. Completely redefined endurance sport for me. <laughs> Absolutely. It was it's unbe- a marathon, she, not she a sprint. Pushed, <laughs> she pushed. Of that 40 hours, she pushed for two hours and 45 minutes, which yeah. basically they'll only let you go to about three hours before they take you to get that thing cut out. So, I mean, she, and, you know, and I've run a marathon two hours before. I mean, she <laughs> pushed for two hours and 45 minutes. I can't even imagine. It was unbelievable, especially after being awake essentially for 40 hours. So, the good news I is, have is, a is lot of it is a little bit like running and that you forget that you've been doing it for that long. <laughs> yeah. You go into that la la land of having sure. no sense of time. I do have a ton of respect, though, for just for the record, for women who, for all women, period, but especially women in labor. Uh, so stitching, hemorrhaging, there's some things that might happen during delivery. How does that affect your running and does that affect that six week kind of benchmark? Um, with the stitches, unless you're, you're dealing with something like a third or a fourth degree tear, if you're dealing with a third or a fourth degree tear, man, please go easy on yourself that you've had your body ripped open. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Um, that you're going to be want to be really on top of uh, just in terms of infection and minding infection. Sometimes um, you can get an infection and it doesn't manifest itself for a little while later. Uh, so making sure that you, again, having open conversation with your care provider about that. Um, but that's something that absolutely they will be checking at your six-week appointment. Although I urge you to really be a great advocate for yourself if you do wind up having stitches post-delivery and you don't feel like something's right, you need to say that, you know. And if your care provider, whoever's attending to you, says, oh, you know, that's, that's just the way it is without actually putting eyeballs on the situation, push a little bit harder. You have to be your own advocate. Regarding postpartum hemorrhage, um, this was something that I didn't even really know much about until I had my third baby and I had a postpartum hemorrhage. And this is basically when the placenta doesn't detach from the uterus 
and then be expelled, which is generally referred to as the third stage of labor. And what can happen then is that your body just bleeds. And um, I had a postpartum hemorrhage. I was right on the borderline of whether I needed a um, transfusion or not. Because I had a home birth, my midwife gave me all the information and informed me of what the options were. She said, you can either just know that you're going to have to take it really easy for, you know, probably eight to 12 weeks, or we can transfer and go to the hospital and get you a blood transfusion. And I didn't want to be separated from my new baby. Oh, yeah, I forgot there was also a blizzard in Austin <laughs> that night. Well, what we consider a blizzard. Yeah. <laughs> blizzard so enough. I didn't want to go to the hospital for that. And so I said, you know what? Eight to 12 weeks in the grand scheme of my life, in the grand scheme of my baby's life, I'm going to lay low. That That's good. And then, like I said, my midwife was super on top of it in the postpartum period, really making sure that um, I was eating a super high iron diet. Um, a lot of protein, really just trying to build back my um, blood supply, keep my red blood cell count up, all of that. What I did not expect, though, was that even after those 8 to 12 weeks passed and I had my um, blood levels tested, I, I just felt like crap. I just had no energy. And for somebody who has been a super high energy person my whole life, this was like, it's like kind of like meeting my evil stepsister or something <laughs> it was like I didn't even know what to do with myself um and and that was really the first period in my life it took me almost two years until I really felt like running again and felt like when I ran that it felt good and that I wanted to be there and so um you know I know that experience like you were talking about Steve with your athlete who like had to meet this new part of herself and that it, it opened her up to to new and different ways of looking at how to move forward well that was my experience was after my third child so we're after the baby's been delivered and you're in that the 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 post the postnatal process we talked a little bit about timing in terms of when a person should start running and as you said your rule of th your 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 experience in your first two uh, childbirths, maybe you were a little f got a little got a little started a little early. But um, tell me a little bit about um, how long, not just from a time perspective, but what happens. Let's say even that you get past that four week or six week period um, after you've met with your doctor and had your check in. What happens? Your body just feels weird and isn't like not what you expect like people i think they think that this that there's going to be a f switch that gets flicked right where it's going to be like as you said oh i'm going right. to be ready to go yeah but what are the some of the things that might be happening when a person's body doesn't feel weird and then how should they respond to those and how should they deal with that yeah well i think that it's the kind of thing that our society as a whole does a great disservice by like having this idea of getting your body back like your body's gone you have a new body you have <laughs> a new normal and that's not something that's bad it just that's what the reality is. And so you're going to feel weird. Um, you know, you've offloaded a lot of weight, first of all. Your center of gravity has shifted again. Um, for most women, even those who deliver via C-section, your pelvis has changed. Super important for those of us who run because when your pelvis isn't in the same place that it was before, things are going to feel different. And so... You know, postnatally, this is a great time period to 
uh, really think about how does the anatomy of the pelvis and the muscles around the pelvis actually work? Because in most women, I've seen this myself personally, as well as in nearly exclusively every woman I've ever worked with. And that's the, you know, super weak glute medius muscles, which are imperative for holding the pelvis in the best possible position for efficient running. Um, and then glutes that maybe aren't firing as strongly as they could be and should be really if you want to do endurance running. And so knowing that if you were the kind of runner who are like many, many kinds of runners who actually don't do anything but running, um, maybe this is a good time to introduce some of these other um, cross-training types of things to you. Um, if you feel weird while you're running and you're peeing on yourself, um, that is something that is not unusual. Um, but this is my one big takeaway I hope people get from today. It's not normal and that it is fixable. Um, and I don't care if you're postnatal by like six weeks or if you're postnatal and your kids like graduated from college, like there are still things that you can do to improve the integrity of your pelvic floor. And most of those things have to do with getting your core muscles firing right. And if you can imagine that not, if you do these things, not only will you stop peeing on yourself while you're running, but you'll actually be stronger to help fuel your running. That's pretty motivating. <laughs> Let's talk about racing. You know, you raced eight months after having your child ran a 344, which is amazing. Kara Goucher, an elite, many people know her name. She raced Boston seven months after having her son Colt. And that time she had at that race that day is still her PR. So it's possible to get back on the horse fairly quickly. But what do you recommend in terms of actually putting that next race on the calendar? I think you can make all the plans that you want to make while you're pregnant. But until you know how your delivery goes and until that first like first month postpartum goes, I really wouldn't encourage you on making too many plans until then. Um, the other tremendously huge factor in planning out an event, planning out a training for that event is you also have no say in whether that baby of yours is going to sleep or not. <laughs> and that is just the hell crashing reality of being a parent. Um, and for some people, maybe they don't need a lot of sleep and they still have energy and they can devote to the running and all of that. And other people are people who think that they didn't need a lot of sleep. But as it turns out, you know, waking up every hour and a half is actually really damaging for their day to day life. Um, and, and they're not going to have the energy to train in the way that they want to. So, you know, that's why I always encourage people to, to wait a little bit, give yourself a little bit of time, see how things are going. And then, yeah, you could put something, you know, I would encourage most people, especially like average recreational runners within the first year. Fantastic. 10 months, 12 months. That's doable for almost everybody. But of course, case by case, listen to your own body. Yeah. So let's get a little bit specific for a second. There's some words here that we discussed discussing that I don't even know what they mean. So what is prolapse? How do you know if you have one? What does that mean? What should you do about it? Well, prolapse is what your doctor should be checking for at your six weeks appo appointment. In very simple terms, that is your internal organs falling out of your body. 
I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat it. <laughs> not a good it. idea. Not a good idea, right? Right? Which seems very simple to say, but you would be amazed at, you know, many of the people, many of the women, um, and, and these are conversations that I hear all the time at races, many of the women who are like, oh, yeah, I'm peeing on myself. That's actually being caused by a cystocele, which is a bladder prolapse, which means that your bladder isn't up in the pelvic bowl where it should be, that it's actually falling down into your vaginal canal. This is not good long term. Um, you know, there there are vaginal prolapses where your vaginal canal is literally sliding out of your body. I had a client um, not long ago. Um, you know, she said, I think I'm ready to get back to running. And I said, okay, well, why don't we do, you know, uh, some, some walking. And then I was going to set her up with some running, but we were working on, on core integrity kinds of things. And I get a text from her that, and she says, it feels like a tampon's falling out of my body, but I don't have a tampon. <laughs> so, you know, it's clear if, if you have this situation, um, you know, but it can be something that happens. It's not just immediately after delivery that it can take the the gravity and the pounding of running that if the organs aren't where they're supposed to be, that introducing the pounding of running is what is going to have them start sliding. So, again, huge red flag. Please, <laughs> please go see <laughs> your, your care provider. provider about it. There are pelvic physical therapists, which, God, I love that they exist. And, man, does everybody have a special calling in life. Um but yeah, really go see somebody. They will help you. In most cases, this is not a, you know, you need surgery kind of situation. This is a, we need you to start working with gravity rather than against gravity kind of situation. Back off the intensity for a little bit. You know, this is, this is what I do as a perinatal fitness specialist, working with women who want to ensure that they're not going to encounter prolapse. So tell us a little bit about breastfeeding. So breastfeeding and um, how that affects running, sort of how that aff uh, it affects life in, in so many ways, which obviously affects running. But it, for runners in specific, specifically, what what suggestions do you have, and what what sort of recommendations do you make for 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 those who choose to breastfeed? This yeah. is a little bit of a dance that you and your baby are going to have to figure out. Um, you know, some people have babies who are super picky that they will only drink from the tap. And that they have no interest in having a bottle, even if it is still expressed milk. The tab being the breast. Yes. <laughs> okay. Just, just yes. making sure. Just to be clear. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I don't have children, but I would probably put them in front of a tap. I had not <laughs> thought about that metaphor before, but mm -hmm. it's a good one. Yeah. And, um, but it can be hard. You know, I, I had two, two of my three kids were like this, where, you know, they were excellent nursers and they would be happy to go, you know, four, six, eight hours long uh, and would not take expressed milk from a bottle. They just had no interest in it. And so, you know, there's a little bit of um, like Google Calendar Jenga that has to take place into inserting your run. Um, into a time when it's going to work for you and your baby. Some babies become very picky. Um, lactic acid apparently has a flavor, and <laughs> that flavor can affect the flavor of breast milk. Um, and so some babies um, won't, won't drink milk if it's high in lactic acid. So for most women, just out of pure comfort, nursing before you run is more comfortable than nursing after you run. Um, but also just making sure that um, as soon as you get back from running, that you go ahead and take off your sports bra, that 
keeping your breasts constricted is something that's going to lead to not only decreased uh, milk production because your breasts are getting the message that they don't need to produce milk, um, but can also lead to things like mastitis, which is a horrible infection that is, um, you don't want to do that. Can I give a PSA to the guys still listening? <laughs> Breastfeeding is really hard, really hard. And I don't think, and it's a topic that nobody really talks about. It's not, you, you, you hear a lot from people about labor and delivery and having kids and that whole process from your friends. Everybody wants to tell you their story, but you don't hear a lot about the breastfeeding stories out there because there's a lot of people that tried and, and fail or that try, but doesn't work initially and you have to work really hard. It's really hard to get that kid oftentimes to latch on and to figure it out. And sometimes the mom's milk doesn't come in in time. And so there's kind of this dance that happens with breastfeeding before it clicks. And for a lot of people, it's really difficult. But the guy plays a role here in both being supportive, but also, you know, potentially helping with certain parts of the process. I mean, when our, with our first, I was actually, we were actually, my wife was able to pump, but, but um, our oldest now wasn't latching on. So we had to play this game with like a tube and, and like attaching it to her breast to try to get the baby to figure out how to do it. And it took probably three, four, five days post having the baby before that really clicked. And then it was, you know, easy from there. But, but then you also have the pumping. And if you're doing pumping and timing of all of that, there's lots of layers to it. And the cleaning. And then and the, the cleaning and sterilization. I mean, there's so many layers to it. And, and it's a team effort. And so the guys that are still listening, if you're out there about to go through this, or you know someone that is going to go through this, make sure that you coach your friends, other guys out there to help their spouse through this process because it's very, very difficult, more difficult than you hear about. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate you saying that, Chris, because, you know, we get a lot of the messaging of, oh, breastfeeding is natural and it's beautiful and it is hella hard work. And nobody tells you that that baby sucks so hard that you could, like, clean the windows of the Empire State (laughs) Building and they're not going to fall off. You know, it's, it's hard work. And... Um, you know, I will say that, that the day that I really felt like I like earned my stripes as a mother was in the starting corral of the London Marathon at eight months and eight days postpartum. And I had gotten a spot in London because I had a good for age qualifying time that I'd run in Boston like before I got pregnant, but it was still within the window. I could use it. And I was sitting there in the starting corral pumping breast milk (laughs) and I was like this is just what we do like this is my new life but I wasn't like I was never going to give up the running part of it but like talk about a new normal right (laughs) and and I mean runners do weird and gross things all the time so you know and by the way I also say another PSA I've got a bunch of them the speaking of special callings you, you mentioned that earlier but lactation consultants have a special calling absolutely and they're there are two sides of that story. One, they're underutilized. So definitely when you're in the hospital, if you're going through this, consult with a lactation consultant because they can help you through it and make it easier for you. But I'll also say they tend to be fairly, I'm going to use the word militant about breastfeeding. Like it's the only option when I think for a lot of people it might not be, or maybe the kid never figures it out and it's just too difficult. So if you have to make the decision to go to formula and you're getting guilt from various people, your friends, lactation consultants, whoever, it's okay. You know, everybody's journey is different again, as we said. So just 
it's okay. If that ends up being your reality, your kid's going to be okay. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. It's so individualized. And, you know, there are plenty of people who also um, have body image issues. And the idea of, you know, taking your baby in the baby jogger and going for a run and stopping an hour later and nursing on a park bench, like... I don't know. You may as well tell them to like set themselves on fire and do something like that's just <laughs> not within their their personal, you know, capability, and and that's okay too. And um, yeah, and everything, just supporting people to be who they are and meeting them where they are, is really important. So let's talk about the running and getting back to it. Oftentimes, baby joggers are employed or jogging strollers, as you get out there because it gives you the flexibility to go with your baby. What are your, what are your tips first of all on maybe choosing a baby jogger and when you can start using it because that's kind of there's kind of a threshold there under which the baby can actually be in one of those and then what are your pros and cons about using them in general i think that it depends a lot on your personal situation what you use your running for um as well as what your goals are. You know, as a recreational runner, I totally think having a jogging stroller makes it so easy and fabulous for you to literally get out there again. You know, motherhood's also very isolating in the early weeks and months. And so having a way for you to just confidently be outside and move your body is more of a gift than you could ever really imagine. I think, though, too, that if you are going to use a jogging stroller, make sure that it's one that fits your body and fits your frame um, because your body's already making a lot of adaptations postpartum in order to find your new stride, find your new gait, that you don't want to have this, like, exterior sort of input from the jogging stroller affecting your running posture. So making sure that it's something that really fits your body. And as for when you can use them with your baby, you know, I trust the manufacturer <laughs> <laughs> suggestions. And on your that. pediatrician. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, talk to them. And, um, you know, some kids love it and some kids hate it. And that, again, is just the dance that you have to do with your own child. But this is another huge shift for me between my first kid and my third kid. Um, and there's eight years in between my, fir- my first and third And um, the first one, you know, I was living in a foreign country. I barely had any friends. I certainly didn't have any family support. And so having a jogging stroller is what allowed me to continue running. You know, my husband was working. If I had waited, you know, and in London in the winter, like you get like three and a half hours of daylight. I mean, (laughs) not really, but it feels that way. Um, But, you know, once I knew that I was going to be training for the London Marathon, too, I knew that I, I had to get out there having a stroller to do it was that was the answer you know by the time we'd we'd moved to Austin I had family support I had friend support also by the time I had a third kid I was like hello I want some time to myself so the idea of putting my daughter in a jogging stroller and going for a run was like the most soul-crushing thing I could think (laughs) of because like here was this thing like robbing me of the joy of my me time (laughs) um you know I mean that's the honest truth and so (laughs) you know being able to have a little bit more flexibility and in schedule and in having people to help out and support me to be like you know what I need this three times a week I need somebody to watch the kids so I can go do this by myself that's also just manifest as being more confident as a parent and knowing that I can ask for what I need yeah and I would also say about the baby joggers is that it also allows the dad to get involved yeah we take the kid 
on a run so that mom can have some me time during those early stages. You know, we had a single, a double, and a triple. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so we've done the gambit of, of baby joggers, and I, I think I ran once with that beast of a triple <laughs> before yeah. we decided yeah. to sell it because it wasn't, Makes you really find your glutes, it wasn't that <laughs> useful <laughs> in the Austin Hills. But, but for both of us, having the baby jogger was critical to be able to get back into a routine mm-hmm. Whether it was her because I was able to take the baby or me because she could take the baby and I could get a break, especially with our first. So highly recommend them. I also recommend you consider, you know, for us, it ended up being our primary stroller. You know, for for those parents out there, we used the baby jogger as our primary stroller because it was super flexible. We had a swivel wheel at the front you could fix or or make swivel. Mm -hmm. Took it on airplanes and folded down, you know, to give a unsolicited shout out to bob and their jogging strollers we used the bob revolution worked really well both the single and our double and it became our primary stroller that we took everywhere and so it saved us money on other strollers because it was so flexible we could use it running we could use it shopping we could use it traveling however so unsolicited advice from a parent there but i like to think of it as an investment in both my mental and physical health and it has a resale value, typically. If you ca- take decent ter- care of it, somebody True. else will want it down the road. Okay, so what else are we missing I think on the, this topic? The last biggest thing that I, w- I want women to know about, because it's incredibly common and um, has a huge effect on your everyday life as well as on your running, is um, the incredible frequency with which women experience diastasis or separated rectus abdominis muscle in pregnancy and that this is something that can happen to you regardless of whether you're in super shape or completely unfit when you become pregnant Um, and in fact in many ways if you are fit before you become pregnant you have a higher incidence of diastasis um, simply because your big slab of a rectus abdominis muscle thinks it's going to hold on as the uterus protrudes and then suddenly it can't um you know i i literally felt mine rupture when it when it ruptured in my in my second pregnancy and again much like when women lose integrity of the pelvic floor that leads to stress incontinence that there are a lot of things that can be done to repair the diastasis and that when you take the time to do that work that it results in in most cases, just being much stronger globally throughout your body. It's not just about having better core energy, which that's important for a lot of things, but being able to really utilize the, the power that you have in your abdominal muscles. So as we wrap here, Karen, this has been fascinating. First of all, thank you for joining us. If women wanted to consult with you on some of these things, whether it's general fitness or maybe core strength or some of these routines that can help, keep the integrity or regain the integrity of their body whether they're pre or post postpartum how do they get a hold of you what's the best way to find karen my business is balance personal fitness training and you can find me at www.balancepft.com or you can join my facebook group which is well balanced women cool awesome thanks for joining happy to be here thank you Hopefully you learned something. Hopefully we still have some men listening. I didn't give that point at the beginning, but hopefully the men stayed on, learned something so they can better relate to 
the strong badass women they have around. I think them. Chris was really missing his old podcast. He was excited to get some yeah. of his some of his topics <laughs> out. His old podcast was Dads on Duty, and he, he you. <laughs> I'm thankful and grateful for you, really epically leading this one. Yes. I think I, I held my own, but you you uh, it was definitely your your. More of your podcast right. cup of tea. It's a, so. good, it's a good shout out for Dads on Duty. We still it have is. 55 episodes out there. <laughs> My friend and I, both dads of three, gave the men's perspective on all things babies and toddlers. So, Well, if you're listening, there could be a comeback. <laughs> yeah. could so be a if comeback. You want, if, you want, if you're in this stage and want to find more on this stuff, we've got a whole bunch of episodes. Dads on Duty, that's D-O-O-D-Y. You can find us on iTunes as well. But this is Running Rogue. Thank you all for joining us. We really appreciate it. This is episode three. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Adios.